0: Awesome. Um, So welcome to Saturday Seminar, Seminar Saturday, whatever, uh, round two. Um, In some ways, this is kind of a continuation of talking about body image um, just because of the way that food is tied to appearance and health, um, mostly as like a tool for achievement in that area. Um, But I think it's also really nuanced in the way that the Bible addresses it and uses it. So um, it'll definitely be a little bit of a different conversation too. Um, As a disclaimer before we really get started, One, like, this was really hard to write. Um, I had a lot of really good resources, but food is everywhere. And so narrowing down a focus um, or really just, like, thoughts in general was challenging. And then not only is food everywhere, but we live in a culture that has so many competing voices about food. Um, And so it was really hard to turn down the volume on all that noise and to kind of think critically about my own food idols and how um, to shape categories in a biblical way. Um, and I know that I've not done that exhaustively in the next, like, 20 minutes, um, nor have I done that perfectly. Um, so feel free to push back on some of the things that I say. Um, really just hoping to kind of jump stop more of a conversation of thinking about food through the lines of Scripture, just because we don't <laughs> ever. Um, and then two, I also want to make it clear that um, no one has a perfectly healthy relationship with food. Um, we are all struggling in ways with disordered eating. Um And by that, I mean normal eating is consuming when we're hungry and stopping, then we stop consumption when we're full. Um, normal eating is as simple as that and when has that ever really been the way that you related to food? Um, we don't listen or obey the needs of our body, um, but there's definitely a spectrum in regards to the way that our habits miss God's intentions. So today um, we're gonna see how the Bible thinks through this relationship. But I'd be remiss if I didn't address that. Often this issue has a deeper stronghold on our hearts um, than can be fixed in this space or discussion. So don't be afraid to ask for more help. Um, if your disordered eating has kind of a level of control or influence over your life that might qualify as an eating disorder, um, even if you aren't really clear on, like, what that line is, um, I'd love to talk more about it. McKenna and Catherine and I would all love to talk more about it. Um, there are more, like, spiritual and medical and psychological resources that can be sought, and I can't stress this enough, like, that's not a battle that you can fight on your own. Um, when you're talking about malnutrition, like, you're altering brain chemistry, and that's something that, like, is impacting way, you way beyond what's um, in your control, Um, So this morning is meant to start a discussion, but I know that a lot more might be required to restore the relationship. So um, we'll structure things the same way we did in February. I'll gab for a little bit longer. Um, And then, honestly, we might just stay as one group and kind of look through those discussion questions together. Um, So there are questions on the back of your handout. If you want to kind of glance at them now to kind of think through your answers as I'm talking. Um, But then also just the top is just an outline. Um, So, yeah, I'll, um, yeah, not a super cheery note to start on, but (laughs) we'll go ahead. I'll pray and then we can get started. Um, Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the space and for the chance to talk about that which you have provided to fill us um, food. And I pray that as we talk about it, we would see it through the lens of provision and gratitude and celebration. But we would also see it as a way that you are meeting um, our needs. And ultimately, we would see you as good and you as the source of good things. Um, Might you use this time to restore our relationships and build community with one another. Um, In Christ's name I pray. Amen. so again, have to cite my sources. There's this woman named Becca McNeil who used to work for RUF staff, and I've never met her, but like I'm going to just like give her the biggest hug if I ever do. Um, I am pulling most of the study from her stuff. Just really thankful for her ministry and perspective. So if I say something and you're like, oh, that sounds like really wise, that makes a lot of sense. She probably said it first. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, um, in 2007, there was a sociologist, a guy named Barry Glasner, and he released a book called The Gospel of Food. And I haven't read it, but from looking on reviews online and kind of just like skimming the first couple pages, um, what I've gathered is that in the book he outlines various food trends and fads and ideas that are advertised and celebrated as gospels or the good news of salvation from the bondage of, say, fat and decay and other various unattractive side effects that eating um, we experience through eating. The book came out 12 years ago, before any of us had really even heard of kale. So think about how many new gospels have been preached to us since then. Um, most of us have watched friends and family members and even ourselves modify our eating and working out patterns to try to achieve the latest standard of health, performance, or body shape. And a lot of these ideas are okay, even good, but even the best intentions become idols to us when we buy into this idea that they are gospel of spreading the good news of rescue and drastic change as opposed to just offering varying degrees of good advice. So what's the difference between good news and good advice, you might ask? Well, if you've ever been to Matt's Biblical Ministry small group, I know a couple of y'all are like fresh out of it this year. Um, You know that good advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet. It invites you to do something to bring about change. And then in contrast, good news is a report about something that's already happened. Change that has come and all that you can do is respond. Good news is automatically blessing. It changes reality and invites us to respond with assurance, joy, and peace. And good advice doesn't automatically change anything. It requires engagement and striving. Our reality doesn't change unless we do something about it. So how does this play out in the world of diet and health trends? Well, take Whole30, for example. Whole30 is not offering, um, an offering of achieved salva- salvation or complete freedom from feeling bad about yourself, even though it's sometimes advertised that way. It's not offering the rescue we require. It's just good advice about how to reorient and refocus your eating habits. In the world of food, health, and beauty, there's a captive audience, big arrow pointing at myself, full of discontentment and looking for a way out. But the advice we receive is not only trying to present itself as good news, so inherently lie to us, but it's also contradictory and it's confusing. It's tainted by money-making schemes the diversity of the human body. Did anyone else read that article about the woman that lived like 103 and drank four Dr. Peppers every day? (laughs) Like what? (laughs) That is confusing. Um, But it's also dated by our failing will. (laughs) If weight loss is the goal, the reality of the dieting industry revealed to us that no matter how good the advice is, often our strivings fail. Americans spent over $70 billion on diet and weight loss products alone in 2018. And, like, the most average statistics will tell you that 95% of all dieters will regain lost weight in one to five years. That is a huge bummer. Like, (laughs) idols, like, literally falling from the sky. (laughs) Um, So, if the trends and standards of the health and beauty industry fail us and leave us in our discontentment and shame, what are we left with? Is there good news for our relationship with food, something to respond to instead of something to strive for? What good news does God's relationship with us, his intention for creation, and Jesus' life and death on the cross have for our health? When a life is focused on loving God and loving others, aka participating in God's mission, what we've all been called to do, does that change what our eating will look like? Um, My hope is to show y'all that caring about what we eat and how we eat does not require a whole new gospel or a completely different gospel, but instead connects us more fully to the gospel that we've been given in Christ. So God and his kindness relates to us in ways that we can understand. Um, Metaphor, this is that, is essential to the way that God communicates with us. Last time we saw how the arc of the biblical narrative communicates to us through our embodiment. So God's physical creation, his own embodiment in Christ's incarnation and resurrection, and then our eventual glorification, where our bodies will be renewed, communicate to us his value and his purposes. Um, God, again, gets on our level, in a sense, to communicate the way that his relationship meets us in our needs by instilling in us a sense of hunger. We are hungry on pretty much every level, physical, emotional, spiritual, and God has created that hunger in us with a communicative purpose. On all these levels, we must be filled by something outside of ourselves. Our hunger helps us recognize that we are not self-sufficient. It gives us the opportunity to come to God for provision, healing, sustenance, and restoration. Food and our need to eat is the physical manifestation of giving God the opportunity to do what he loves to do. He loves to provide for us, and every meal we get to celebrate that. Food is one of the ways he fills our hunger, and therefore it is inherently good and valuable. And yet again, as we've experienced and talked about so far, sin has tainted and twisted our use of food and the way it fills us. Um, If you were with us last month, we talked about the long-lasting cultural influence of Plato, the Greek philosopher, Ooh, he makes me so mad. (laughs) Um, But he has largely influenced Christian thinking and the way that we relate to the physical world. Um, As a refresher, Plato believes in a dualism between... Plato believed, I guess he's dead, so he's not actively believing this now. But (laughs) anyway, Plato believed in a dualism between the material and the immaterial. And not just this sense of division, but also hierarchy. So thoughts and our souls, the unseen, according to Plato, are inherently more valuable than anything we can see. Nature, material things, our bodies, the way we eat, etc. This Platonic dualism or a hierarchical division of the human as soul and then body prioritizes the spiritual at the expense of material creation. And so sometimes that means that we really devalue the material creation. But I think mostly, practically for us, it means that we see the material creation as a tool for ourselves and our own kingdoms instead of as a gift from God. And this has radically shaped the cultural Christian worldview with widespread implications for our relationships, not just body image like we talked about, um, but also the environment, justice and mercy, what we think counts as those things, evangelism, the way we counsel people, and of course, as we're talking about today, food. As Christians influenced by Plato, we often don't think about ourselves holistically. So maybe we pray before a meal, but rarely do we think that God really cares about the way we eat. We eat in reactionary ways that are motivated by need, convenience, body image, and comfort. And we are full of contradictions. <laughs> we'll deny our bodies what they need for the, sake in, for the sake of fitting into something or for the hope of like drastic change the week leading up to a beach trip. But then we'll also overindulge after a night out or in a moment of perceived weakness. Anytime I buy trolley gummy worms for <laughs> freshman Bible study. <laughs> Some weeks we spend hours counting calories and prepping meals, hoping that we'll never be caught off guard. Other weeks we swing through a drive through for the fifth time or are literally eating plain noodles because that's all we have left in the pantry. Food is such a very low priority in the midst of everything else we have going on. Sometimes we forget to eat. Some meals we anticipate for weeks in advance. Yes, I once DM'd a bagel place in D.C. to make sure that they would be open when I visited over Thanksgiving. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Whatever we do, though, it's with our kingdom in mind, with our schedule, our image, and our needs. Um, When it comes to food, we operate out of this false, sacred, and secular divide, hoping for some semblance of control. And this divide is harmful because it makes the scope of God's kingdom and kingship smaller, and it makes our religion much simpler. We buy into the lie that I can keep thinking what I want or doing what I want regarding how I relate to food because God doesn't really care about it. In the same way, we've told ourselves that the inside belongs to God and the outside belongs to us. We've told ourselves God doesn't really get a say as we relate to food. Instead, here are some of the priorities and ideas we bring to our relationship with food, hoping to manipulate it and serve our kingdom. And these are by no means extensive, but these are just four categories that I... um, that Becca pointed out, and then I've added a little bit too, just of like ways that I see we have problems. So the first one is the Tord affair. Um, this is the love-hate relationship. Here we have two powerful entities, both the human and food, and each one is trying to gain the upper hand. So your desire for control and the food's desire to ruin your health and figure meet on the battlefield of every dessert and snack and second helping. Food capitalizes on the human's weak points, your taste buds. Eek! <laughs> and humans continually demonize the food in an effort to ward it off. We come up with schemes, leaving super aggressive notes on our fridge, or we hop from one diet plan to the next, hoping to win the battle. Here, food is not seen as a gift, but as an enemy. Um, I can't help but think of Regina George in Mean Girls um, when I think of this like kind of torrid affair aspect. So she's sitting there at the cafeteria, and she's like, 120 calories and 48 calories from fat. What percent is that? I'm only eating foods with less than 30% of fat, <laughs> calories from fat. And then, of course, Katie does the math, and she just, like, lifts up her hand and is like, whatever, I'm getting cheese from. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is the tour to affair. <laughs> food won that round in a, Regina George's life. <laughs> the second one is fuel for the machine. In this scenario, food is treated as a sum of its nutritional elements that make the human body work. The human is kind of an industrial machine, even if we maybe are describing it with like earthy or holistic terms, and all it needs is the right mix of vitamins, minerals, and proteins to function at an optimal level. Food here is meant to be consumed as fuel, but it's not meant to be enjoyed. Um, y'all ever heard of a TV show called The Office? <laughs> this is Creed in The Office, whose co-workers are complaining that he actually smells like death. And it's true because he sprouts mung beans on a damp paper towel in his desk drawer. And he says, yes, they're very nutritious, but they smell like death. (laughs) Why on earth would nutrition make us want to smell like death? That's a horrible thing. The third category is the best friend. Food here is a comfort. It's the ice cream after a breakup. It's the meal your mom cooks every time you come home. It's the cookout shake after a long day. It's a means of escape. And pretty much, if you need an example of this, just like turn on an episode of 30 Rock <laughs> and watch <laughs> Tina Fey's character. Um, at one point, she exclaims in the midst of a problem at work, I'm going to go talk to some food about this. <laughs> That's actually, I was like trying to find a specific example and instead landed on this whole like compilation video, which was like a 15 minute rabbit hole that I spent time <laughs> watching. But it's called Liz Lennon Loves Food and it summarizes this concept quite nicely and is truly hilarious. So you definitely should look that up. Um, and then fourth, the fourth way we relate to food is as a statement of character um food here is a show it's used to outwardly prove our values our priorities and our experiences we want to be seen as a girl who shops right who follows all the right food blogs who has experienced the most elaborate desserts and meals all of which happen to be served in bowls millennials i don't know um and food here is best paired with a good instagram caption and it becomes the means to elitism status maybe environmental consciousness or living fully um The example that I came up with for this one was that episode of Portlandia. Does anyone watch Portlandia or no? So, it's basically just making fun of, like, Portland culture... And at one point they show up at a restaurant and the waitress like casually asks if they have any questions about the menu and they have a lot of questions (laughs) specifically about this chicken and they want to know like what it was fed, where it lived. Um, She ends up coming, the waitress comes back and like has the chicken's paperwork. Turns out its name was Colin. It was a fed sheep's milk, soy and hazelnuts and it was from a farm just 30 minutes down the road. (laughs) And so they literally leave the table and go and check out the farm. Turns out the farm is a cult. I'm digressing just like The episode does, but um what they do in response of like eating rightly um is absolutely ridiculous and a huge waste of everyone's time. (laughs) Um so there's an element of truth in all of these categories. Food is and should be discipline, it is and should be fuel, it is and should be comfort, and it is and should be a statement of our character. And I think we'll see a lot of those categories reflected in Jesus' teaching. But when we use food as a tool of promoting and advancing our own image and our own kingdom through discipline, fuel, comfort, and character, instead of seeing it as a gift of participating in God's kingdom, we fall into well-laid and often well-intended traps that are limiting God's rule and reign. And despite all that affirmation that that default um, Platonic lens gets from our culture, the reality is that no area of life is untouched by God's word and reign, and that includes our eating um so what has God taught us about food and our hunger is there good news enough to change the way that we relate to food the Bible isn't super explicit about food in the way we would want it to be it doesn't think in terms of calories or superfoods being swimsuit season ready or low carb diets in fact like in the farming communities that the Bible is talking about like a low carb diet is probably the stupidest thing they've ever (laughs) heard of In scripture, food is not a tool used to merit or achieve certain results, but it is thought of and seen as something that God loves. He cares about food. He records the taste of things. He cares why we eat. He cares if we are looking to food to satisfy something that only He can satisfy. He really cares about where our food comes from. The Bible thinks about food in terms of provision, celebration, metaphor, ministry, and then fasting. Um, So we're going to do a quick survey of some passages to kind of unpack these categories a bit and then connect ourselves to the good news um, that our relationship with food should be responding to. And this is by no means an exhaustive list of all the times food is mentioned or talked about in the Bible. If we did that, we'd actually be here till Thursday food is everywhere (laughs) honestly I didn't look up like any of the stats but I would be surprised if it wasn't on like every other page at least in some form or fashion um so I know that this is a narrow focus but hopefully we'll still able be able to get kind of a fuller picture through it um so first up provision Genesis 1 28 through 30 and then Genesis 2 15 through 17 is talking all about how God um is providing food for his creation Um, verses 15 in chapter two says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in the beginning, God provides food for his people. And I think it's really important to note that for the original audience of Genesis, this passage would have been like revolutionary and really incredibly revealing Many of the pagan religions that they were surrounded by in their ancient Near East culture, the creation stories taught that humans were created in order to provide and gather food for the gods. So to have a God that provided for his people would have been a radical idea, and I think it's something that we're still having a hard time grasping to this day, that God wants to provide for us. From the beginning, God is saying we don't provide for him or ourselves, he provides for us through his good creation, and not only does he provide for us, but he delights to do so. That is His good design. We can't be self-sufficient or self-sustained. God is establishing that He is a God who provides our purpose, working and keeping the garden for Adam and Eve, and then He also provides our provision, food. Even before the fall, we were hungry creatures in need of God's provision. It is important to note that the first restriction God gives to us as His image bearers is regarding food, too. That's crazy. Uh, but this establishes forever the fact that God wants to be part of the way that we fill ourselves on every level. Um, and the first restriction, of course, leads to the first sin. So no wonder we have such a complicated relationship with food now. Good grief, we didn't even last two chapter three chapters before we messed up how to eat. Um, so we see food again as provision in Exodus 16. And I think in this season of life, this might be my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, but ask me tomorrow and it probably will have changed. Um, And I encourage you to read the chapter as a whole, but for the sake of time, I'll summarize it. So, after being set free from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites find themselves hungry and in the desert. And instead of trusting God to continue to provide for their needs, their hunger brings them, of course, to mistrust and whining. They exclaim, would that we have died by the hands of the Lord In the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, ew, I don't know what that is, but gross, (laughs) and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord hears the cries of his people and graciously responds by promising meat and bread to meet their needs and reminding them who fills and cares for them. So in the evening, quail descends upon the camp, and in the morning, the dew turns into this flaky substance that they gather, mix together, and consume as bread. They are instructed to take the exact amount they need. If they take too little, they'll find themselves with no lack. And if they gather too much, they find themselves with no leftover, or they find that any excess has rotted the next day. The only day that they're allowed to gather excess is in anticipation of Sabbath rest. This is my favorite detail. Israel calls the bread manna, and verse 31 records the actual taste of it. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So manna is nutty and citrusy and sweet, it's pleasing to the taste, it is good, good bread that sustains and cares for the people of Israel for 40 years (laughs) till they come to a habitable land. The Lord provides so that His people will know who He is. His work to meet the physical needs of His people is done to reveal His character and to give His name glory. I think our instinct is to make an idol of the things that we have built, especially our own health and our own fitness. Maintaining a certain weight, exercising self-control is hard, and sometimes it is worthy of celebrating. But because taking care of ourselves requires work, food wrongly becomes either the means by which we f- fuel ourselves or enemy number 1 trying to foil all of our best intentions. And in contrast, when we see food through the lens of provision, like we've seen in the last two passages, it calls us to be thankful for what God has given. Food as provision of creation and God's good character is a gift that we cannot lay claim to or make an idol out of. What we consume is not a tool to promote our own kingdoms, but a celebration of his kingdom. Next category is food as ministry. So the Corinthian culture had this phrase, food is for the belly and the belly is for food. And that was obviously impacting the church in Corinth because Paul addresses it a few times in his first letter to them. What the idiom means is that food is for my pleasure and my mastery so I can do whatever I want. Sound familiar? <laughs> in First Corinthians ten twenty three, Paul addresses this phrase and says, Hold up. The way we relate to food is not isolated or in a vacuum. It affects and involves other people. He writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising question on the ground of conscience. And then he kind of continues along in that same theme, and he finishes up the section by saying, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what the heck does this mean for us? Paul is reminding the church that all the food restrictions given to God's people in the Old Testament are no longer relevant in light of of Christ. Ooh, weird word. Um, If you have questions about that, I'd love to kind of talk more about that later. Um, But just for the sake of time, we won't go into all the Old Testament food laws. Um, So as he says, all things are lawful. This means that the gospel for us is not Jesus plus perfect food habits. I don't think we can be comfortable labeling food as sinful or bad because that is creating an alternate form of righteousness. But Paul is also saying that not all things are helpful. We do need to think carefully about who is being exploited in the making of the food we eat, how much value is in the food for sustenance and nutrition, and I think that should help us determine how much of it we eat. So let's say we're faced with a Twinkie. Is it wrong to eat a Twinkie? No. Is it helpful? Well, that's a wisdom issue, I think. It depends on if you're able to see it through the lens of God's provision and gratitude. Paul also says that our eating should be part of the way we are participating in God's kingdom building, seeking not our own advantage, but doing what is good for our neighbor. The specifics about the sacrificial system that he kind of gets into don't really apply, but eating for the glory of God and the good of others still does. Food and fellowship go hand in hand. What we eat, how we talk about food, influences and impacts our reflection as image bearers. Food can't be separated from the opportunity it has to give God glory. And then for the last couple categories, the metaphor and fasting will look at Jesus' ministry. Um, and throughout Jesus' life and ministry, food and hunger play honestly like the leading role <laughs> in a lot of ways in parables and miracles and other life events. Um, food is everywhere. Slate, uh, Sean Slate at Redeemer actually did a whole sermon series in the fall about Jesus eating with people. And it's really great if you want to think about Jesus's ministry um, through the lens of food. I really encourage you to check those sermons out. I think they're just on Redeemer's website. Um, and Jesus uses the needs and the appetites of the body as a way to connect people to his ministry and the overall mission of God. Jesus is not saying there's an explicit Christian way to eat and a bad way to eat, but that food is a part of life that is to be incorporated into holistic life ministry. Food is loaded with both formative potential to connect ourselves to the Lord and His people. Food is not to be isolated as a tool for our own kingdom promotion and comfort, but as a part of the mission. I've included a handful of verses in your handout that I wish we had time to go over, but you can just use them as resources later as you think about these things. Um, but I do want to point out a couple of the themes present in how Jesus uses food. So first, celebration. Um, salvation has come, and Jesus invites us to partake in that. We can delight in the truth that we will be filled. In Matthew 11, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, <laughs> not because he was one, but because he celebrated in a manner that was like hard for people to comprehend. He's anticipating what Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yeah, Jaina and I are very excited. (laughs) When you receive good news, you celebrate using the gifts that you've been given. Food allows us to celebrate the provision and abundance of God's coming kingdom, and so Jesus uses it as such. The second theme that we see in the way Jesus is talking about food is teaching and sacrament. Um, He's using these extended metaphors to take our physical needs to the level of teaching and then further sustenance. Jesus is showing us that in him, our deepest needs are met, and he gives us tangible reminders and experiences of such. And then the third category that Jesus kind of used to talk about food is fasting. And basically what that means is that when we're looking to the gifts instead of the giver, a.k.a. um, God, Jesus invites us to reorient. We restrict not to alter numbers on a scale or the way that we look, but to worship and remember our need to set aside even that which is good for that which is God that's what the whole season of Lent is about. It's restricting good things so that we can have focus on the source of those good things on who God is. Um, Becca McNeil used this illustration of like, when it comes to cookies, like obviously eat cookies, love cookies, enjoy cookies. But when the cookie becomes the source of comfort, not the tangible reminder that God is the source of comfort, then we might need to reorient. Sweet. So I encourage y'all to keep thinking more about those themes in Jesus's ministry. Um, So in closing, like, what do we do with all of this information? What does the good news about God's provision mean for us? Um, Well, I think it means that our relationship with food is formative, meaning that whether we like it or not, our relationship with food is shaping us, and it's shaping broader and bigger things than we think. Um, It has the potential to serve as a daily ordinary reminder of our extraordinary God through fellowship, fasting, and fulfillment. So how do we eat with gratitude and awareness of these things? This is very much so a wisdom issue, which I know seems kind of like a cop-out. I know we all want the, like, here's a 10-step plan to eat <laughs> like the gospel would. Um, but we're just more nuanced than that. We're more diverse than that. Um, I think just one nuance that I want to point out, and that requires wisdom, is that as, like, who we are in this space, like, we have inherent privilege of knowing where our next meal is going to come from. And this makes this a very different conversation for us than it is for a lot of people in our city and our nation and our world. And I don't say that to be like the mom that's like guilting you into eating your vegetables because they're starving kids somewhere else. Uh, but just to acknowledge that our affluence makes this a different conversation than some would and should be having. I think for all of us, though, it does mean that we have to restore intentionality to our eating. No more of this forgetting to eat or being too busy to eat crap, but taking time to recognize our hunger and our need and thank God for the opportunities that he provides to fill it. Connecting our need to God's goodness is what the Bible is all about, and every meal is a chance to participate in that. I'm going to say that again because I think it's so important. (laughs) Connecting our need to God's goodness is what the Bible is all about, and every meal is a chance to participate in that. That's what provision is. I also think it means that we cling to the good news and hold loosely to good advice. We have to remember where true rescue and change comes from before we can wisely interact with trends for health and food consumption. And so for some of us, this might mean that our eating habits really radically need to change. We need to do something different to reconnect ourselves to God's meeting of our needs. Um, and we hope that we'll become thoughtful and intentional about food, maybe through a plan like Whole30 or something like that, instead of reactionary and overindulgent. We need to try new things. We need to learn that God provides even when we restrict. And by restrict, I mean eating a few Oreos instead of the whole sleeve of Oreos. (laughs) For others, this might mean that we sacrifice a self-image that we have long protected and fought to get. We throw away our scales and we relax our habits. We stop seeing food in the false categories of good versus bad and out to get us so that we celebrate that God provides and wants us to delight in and enjoy his provision. We can eat what tastes good and celebrate his kingdom and our participation in it. For others, this might mean that we take our privilege of time and resources, and we use it as a means to research where our food comes from and to respond with eating habits that promote the flourishing of God's kingdom at large. We're eating things that celebrate as opposed to abuse the source of them. And for others, it might mean that we reprioritize in our schedules making time for communal meals in a day, making food not a means of escape but a part of community building, knowing that our bad habits only flourish when we can hide them, We make time for roomy dinners, and we start inviting people to join us on our lunch breaks because we know God's kingdom is a community effort, so our participation in it now should be as well. Again, I think for all of us, though, we really need to identify the voices that are the loudest for us when it comes to food. It could be that stupid fourth-grade boy that called you fat, or your mom's modeling of food being public enemy number one and only out to gain extra weight. Maybe it's some ridiculous Pinterest workout that said nothing tastes as good as skinny feels vomit <laughs> or <laughs> it's your instagram feed your pride your laziness your inner dialogue when you're looking in the mirror or maybe your inner dialogue when you compare yourself to others at the beach at spring break if you're ske- maybe it's your schedule saying eating is of little value in contrast to everything else that the day requires of you i think we need to identify those voices and vocalize them not only to ourselves but to our friends and to god and listen instead to this invitation from isaiah 55 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Our thirst and our hunger are not a problem, but they're an opportunity. An opportunity to come to he who has made us taste buds and all, and he who has made good things to fill us. We eat and enjoy his provision with gratitude. We fast when his provision starts to outshine him. And we participate in his coming kingdom instead of laboring in vain to build our own. So come and eat. Amen.